This morning we are going to be in the book of Colossians, so if you have your Bibles you can turn there. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 28 and 29. And as you're turning there, if you wanted to get to know someone in our day and age, how would you go about doing that? Now you may do it a sneaky, kind of stalkerish way by looking for them on social media, Right? Uh, no one's ever done that before. Uh, but you could also uh, Google their name and see what comes up. All right. Uh, so less secretive and stalkerish would be uh, to ask others about that person. Say, hey, do you know so-and-so or whatnot? And then you could be really old-fashioned and you could actually go and speak to that person face-to-face and actually spend time with them, getting to know them. Uh, this is called Friendship. Uh, and I know it's a, it's a waning uh, relationship in our day and age, face-to-face uh, friendship. But what if you want to get to know somebody who lived before our time? What would you do? You may go and read a biography. Uh, that would give you insight. Uh, if you really wanted to get to know them, you could read an autobiography, something that they wrote uh, themselves, a, a memoir, so to speak. You could also look at maybe some of their personal effects. If you had access to them, you could see what objects they treasured in life, and that would tell you a lot about uh, wh- who they were and what they, they valued uh, as a person. But you could also uh, look for some of their personal correspondence, maybe a a journal or a diary or their personal letters, uh, what they wrote to somebody else. And on those pages, you would really get to to see and understand what they what they really cared about, what mattered most to them, what they would take time and and write uh, a letter to somebody else regarding Uh, and. And, and if you really think about it, when we come to books, especially of individuals who have passed away, it's like we're having a conversation with them. You ever think about that? That reading a book is having a conversation with the author. Uh, and when we come to uh, the pages of Scripture, who are we having a conversation with? Well, first and foremost, God, uh, the divine uh, author of all of Scripture. Uh, but then we're also having a conversation, an interaction with the human author. Uh, and as we come to uh, the book of Colossians this morning, we're going to we're going to get to have a conversation with the Apostle Paul. We're going to to get to see uh, him describe his own passions, his own desires, what he felt his life was dedicated to, uh, and we're going to get to see that in his own words. Uh, we're going to get to see what he did, what motivated him, and how he was able to work so hard and so long for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And uh, especially when we read someone's personal letters, what we really get a sense of what matters to them. Their, their passion kind of comes out on the, the pages that they write. And that's what we're going to get to see uh, this morning as we're going to look at Colossians uh, 1, 28 uh, and uh, 29. We're, these, these verses come uh, in one of my favorite paragraphs actually in the book of Colossians. Uh, as Paul is introducing himself to the Colossians of who he is, uh, what he has been called to do by God, because the Colossians have never met Paul. You see, Paul is writing this letter from Rome, uh, and the reason he's writing to the Colossians is because their pastor, a man named Epaphras, who we're introduced to in, in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Epaphras came all the way to visit the Apostle Paul in Rome because he was concerned for his church. 
Uh, his church was beginning to, uh, to be divided. His church was beginning to uh, believe false teaching and, and beginning to, to head off in a different direction regarding who Jesus was uh, and then how we are uh, saved uh, as individuals of how do we come to salvation. They were beginning to believe uh, different things. And so if you're one of the Colossians and uh, your pastor went to Rome and then suddenly uh, another messenger comes back carrying this letter from a guy named Paul, you're like, who? Who is this Paul guy? I've never met him. And you, you probably have a, a whole bunch of questions of who is this guy? What does he want with us? What gives him the right to come and, and meddle with our affairs, right? What gives Paul the, the right to come and, and correct the Colossians and say, hey, you're believing these wrong things, but here's what you should believe. Uh, and so all of these things Paul is going to, uh, to answer and address in this letter uh, and uh, what we're going to, to look at and kind of read just to get a little bit of the context is uh, verses 24 to 29. But we're just going to look at and study uh, verses uh, 28 and 29 this morning. So read along with me. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, And what we're going to see here uh, is the Apostle Paul, he introduced himself and now he's going to be describing his ministry. What he was sent by God to do. He says, hey, I have a stewardship, a commission from God to go and proclaim the gospel uh, and to go and to make disciples. And uh, Paul is going to describe his ministry, what his ministry consists of. And then he's going to, in essence, you could say, describe his, his philosophy of ministry. We're going to see the, the model, the motivation and the means of what Paul did and why he did it. Uh, and that's what we are going to, to get to see it. And as we see Paul describing his own ministry, we're going to see what true ministry should look like. Right? That's an appropriate uh, question to answer here at a, at a church plant. Yes, this church is really only about two years old. Uh, so we're still in that baby giraffe phase of still trying to, to get up on our legs and walk. Uh, still do that awkwardly at times. But uh, we're, we're still a young church and need to be uh, reminded about what ministry should look like. What should we focus on? And right now we're at a, a phase in ministry uh, where uh, a lot of things can, can capture our attention. And we can go a variety of ways. And what we're going to see uh, today is what should be the main thing. Uh, and my job as as a pastor, as an, as an elder, is to keep the main thing the main thing, uh, is to make sure that that receives our, our focus and we stay on target and on task with what the Lord is calling us to do. And so as we look at this, we're really going to see what, what ministry should look like, true gospel ministry, what should characterize that within a church, uh, and what type of ministry is going to, to glorify Christ and build us up in unity and love and peace 
And what we're going to see this morning in these two verses are these three characteristics that will teach us the what, the why, and the how of true gospel ministry. And our understanding of these characteristics of what a church should be and should focus on uh, is going to to help us uh, go in the right direction. And it's also going to challenge each and every one of us here. Uh, because each and every one of us here are called to be evangelists. Each and every one of us here are called to be disciple makers. So raise your hand if you are part of the outreach team. Everybody, raise your hand. Yeah, raise your hand if you're part of the uh, the discipleship team. Everybody, yeah, raise your hand. Uh, this this is the, the 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 attitude that we need to have as we come to church, as we see what Paul is going to say here. We'll see later on in Colossians that he calls the whole Colossian church to do exactly as he is doing here in these verses. But uh, we're going to see uh, these three characteristics. Uh, of gospel ministry uh, in these two verses. And the first uh, is going to be found in in the first part of uh, verse 28. Uh, And this characteristic is that gospel ministry is focused on the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus. Gospel ministry is focused on the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus. Again, if you look at the first part of verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And that is the, the call of what the Apostle Paul uh, did. And he says, uh, we, uh, as he's describing his model of ministry, this, and he's referring to he himself plus Timothy, who we're introduced to in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, plus Epaphras, the pastor who came from Colossians, plus all of the other apostles that Paul uh, wraps into that we. Uh, Christ is the one they proclaim. Uh, At the heart of everything that Paul did was proclaim Jesus. Uh, And uh, it's an ongoing proclamation. Uh, And there's an emphasis here. If you think about how the the first three words in this verse are ordered, how would we normally say that in English? Do we usually say, Him we proclaim? Or we usually say, We proclaim Him. Right, so what's emphasized there? If you change the word order uh, in the Greek, it creates an emphasis. So the emphasis in this statement is upon who? It's upon Christ. It's upon Jesus. Of so Jesus is the one that Paul was proclaiming. That was the focus of his ministry. Uh, one pastor commentator says that Christ is the, the sum and the substance of their message. It is Jesus that they proclaim. He is the one that they point people too. And there's, there's two components of this proclamation. They proclaim Christ, uh, but they do it in, in two aspects. And one's a, a negative and one's a positive. All right, so him we proclaim. And what do they do? Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Right? And, and the warning is that, that negative aspect. And that to warn or admonish somebody is to, to counsel someone to avoid uh, or cease a wrong course of conduct. Uh, you're saying, hey, don't go in that direction uh, any longer. It speaks of a uh, counsel in view of sin or of coming punishment. And the, the way the, the word is put together in the Greek, it literally means to bring something to mind. Uh, that you're going to help somebody realize what uh, what is coming to pass or what is the, the danger that they are in. You're going to put something in their mind. And uh, when, when Christ or when Paul says that he, he wants to uh, warn how many people? He says, warning everyone, ongoing warning. But then who is everyone, right? Is he literally saying every person who has ever existed? Is he only referring to believers? Of what is he, what is he referring to here? Who is everyone? And what I think he's saying is that everyone consists of everyone that he comes into contact with. 
both believer and unbeliever. He wants to, uh, to warn them and, and call them to Christ. And so uh, to warn a, a Christian would mean to, to admonish them, uh, to, to call them from pursuing sin and to turn back to following and obeying Jesus. Uh, but then also to, to warn a, a non-Christian, to warn an unbeliever, is essentially the same message, right? The gospel calls believers to turn from sin and turn to God. Guess what the gospel calls unbelievers to? To turn from sin and to turn to God. But for the first time, a, a big U-turn uh, for an unbeliever where it's small U-turns for uh, a believer, for a Christian. We're called to see little spots of sin in our life and we turn from those. Uh, but for an unbeliever, we they need to see and comprehend that... The, the gravity of their sinfulness before a holy God and to realize, hey, all people, every person who's ever walked the earth has rebelled against a holy God who's given them life and breath and everything. And we are called to turn from our, our way of life, uh, pursuing self and pursuing sin. And we're called to then live for Jesus, acknowledging our rebellion against him uh, and then trusting completely in who he is and what he has done. Again, the very message that Paul is dedicated to proclaiming uh, that Jesus is the, the son of God who lived a perfect life, uh, who was unjustly killed, murdered, crucified on the cross. But as he was on the cross, he bore the penalty for our sins. And if we look to him in faith, we have reconciliation with God, forgiveness, restoration. Uh, and that is what th- we proclaim now. But you may say, where is, where is the warning in that message? Well, the, the warning comes in the, the danger that we are in if we reject that message. That's what we've seen over and over again as we've studied the Gospel of John, right? There's no neutral ground, right? It's not, there is no like, well, I'm, I'm not necessarily for God, but I'm not necessarily against Him either. No, that's not a category. There is no fence to be on. You either are believing in Jesus or you are hostile to Him. Right? You either uh, accept the light or you reject it. As we've seen over and over in John's Gospel, that is the, the pattern that the Apostle John lays out and what we see here is exactly the same. But since all men have uh, rebelled against God, there is always a judgment looming over us unless we turn in faith to Christ. Uh, and, and that is our loving and gracious admonition uh, to anybody who has not yet placed our, their faith in Jesus. So the Apostle Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, but then there's also a positive aspect. The, the warning is the negative, and then the positive uh, is teaching. It's you know, to tell, tell someone what to do, to tell and, and instruct them. And, and part of the Great Commission is to teach uh, and to make disciples and to teach everything that Jesus has taught us. We pass along to others. Uh, and the teaching is naturally geared more towards believers than just uh, towards an unbeliever. Because an unbeliever, they don't necessarily need to begin to obey Jesus before believing in him. The big message to them is, hey, turn and in faith to Christ. Uh, and, and as we look at these two ways and components of the message that that Paul was proclaiming about Jesus. Now the the warning and the teaching. Uh, it's it's very easy for both of those to be abused within the church. Right? It's, it's very easy to to warn people or to correct people based upon our own preferences. Uh, or our own understanding of right and wrong rather than according to God's word. And, when, and whenever we begin to, to warn and correct people according to our own standards, we're, we are abusing this relationship that, that we begin to have with others. 
that we, that we must warn and we must add or teach. Now, what does the Apostle Paul say? Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Uh, and, and wisdom, where is wisdom to be found? Well, if you just look in uh, chapter 2, verse 3 of this same letter, it says, uh, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as we warn, as we teach, as we proclaim Jesus, we, we make that proclamation with all wisdom, knowing and understanding, hey, when should I speak? When should I not speak? How should I say what needs to be said uh, at this moment in time? And we must look uh, to Christ and his word for wisdom, uh, especially if we are going to, to warn and, and teach. And this is a command that we all have. But when we, when it comes time to do that, how do we usually feel? When we have to, to warn someone or have a difficult conversation, is that something that we look forward to typically? No, that, that's a dreadful thing. Right? Nobody really looks forward to those conversations, and if you do, you're probably going to abuse uh, your, your power. If you're looking forward to confronting someone, you probably need to, to check your heart. But knowing and understanding that we do have that responsibility, that we, we have a responsibility, if we have truth and if someone else is in, in danger or in error, we must share that truth with them. Uh, and even our government knows this. Okay, uh, Back in 1981, the, the Federal Trade Commission issued a, a report to Congress that concluded uh, that health warning labels had little effect on public knowledge and attitudes about smoking. So as a result of this report, Congress enacted the Comprehensive Smoking Education Act of 1984. It's a public law, 98-474, just in case some of you don't believe me. Uh, and, and this law required four specific health warnings on all cigarette packages. So it says, Surgeon General Warning, in all caps, smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy. N- another warning, uh, quitting smoking now greatly reduces serious risks to your health. Another Surgeon General warning on every package. Smoking by pregnant women may result in fetal injury, premature birth, and low birth weight. And the the fourth and final Surgeon General warning on every cigarette pack, cigarette smoke contains carbon monoxide. Right? You think about that. So Congress had this this study that takes place of, hey, people aren't responding uh, to the, the warnings that we're issuing. And so they said, well, we need to continue to warn people. So what did they decide to do back in the 80s? On every single cigarette packet, what do they require? The, all four of these warnings to be placed there because Congress felt that they had a responsibility to warn people of this danger. Of, hey, if you're going to walk in this direction, here's the warning that you need to heed, what you need to understand. And if Congress understands that responsibility that they have, how much more do we have a responsibility? Not just to proclaim uh, and to, to warn people about a physical danger that they are in, but to warn people of a spiritual danger that may culminate, culminate in their judgment from a holy God. So we have this responsibility. We must do as Paul did and we must proclaim Jesus. And we have to remember that part, that we proclaim a person. We proclaim a relationship, who he is and what he has done. But what does it look like to proclaim a person rather than a philosophy or rather than just principles to live by, or rather than just programs within a church? What does it look like to proclaim Him as a person? Well, it means that we are we are not calling people to follow just a set of rules. 
We're not just calling people to stop sinning. And when we, when we do that, when we only call people just, hey, stop it, like that Bob Newhart uh, video, uh, you can go look it up. Uh, but when we just say stop it, uh, we, we are subtly telling people that really the only thing that they need to do to save themselves is follow the rules. Right? And that's not the gospel. That, that's the proclamation of principles. Right? Proclaiming Jesus means that he is the heart of all that we proclaim. It means that we are not just calling people to acknowledge a system of, uh, of abstract theology either. It's not just memorize these theological facts uh, about Jesus and then you'll be good. Because what does that teach? That teaches if you just know these certain things and can regurgitate them on command, uh, then, then you're good to go. But again, that's not it either. Uh, ideas and rules don't save people. Jesus does. And that's what we need to keep in mind. We proclaim him. We proclaim a person. Uh, we're calling other people to know Jesus, to have a relationship with him that's ongoing, not just to, hey, I met, the, I met Jesus one time and then I'm good to go. Uh, no, have an ongoing relationship with him. That is what we are to call people to. And that is the, the heart of our ministry. We proclaim Christ to others. This was the heart of Paul's ministry. He called every single believer, every single person he came into contact with, he proclaimed Christ to them. That was his heart. And if you look over at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, you'll notice something similar said, but this is a command given to the entire church. We've already obeyed part of it this morning, but other parts of it we need to obey in our small groups, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We've done the, the latter part of that today as we got together and we, and we sang and we praised God. And that was wonderful, wasn't it? Can I get an Amen. Amen. Uh, but we are also called to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and to teach and admonish one another. How? In all wisdom. So what the Apostle Paul is saying was his uh, mark and his model of ministry. He now says everybody else in the church is supposed to do the exact same thing. And in a healthy church, the mark of a maturing church, believers will interact with one another and come alongside one another in love uh, speaking the truth graciously and kindly, but exhorting one another in all wisdom. Uh, and this is so needed. I love the way that uh, Paul Tripp ex- expresses it. He says that we are blind to our own blind spots, right? that we don't necessarily know what we are missing, and we need the input of others to come alongside us and to help improve our vision, to help show, hey, you may not see this in your life, but it's really clear, and hey, let's work on this. Let's pursue Christ together. I love what another pastor, uh, John Kitchen, says regarding this. He says, we never outgrow the need for admonishment and instruction. When we cannot receive both of these ministries from either spiritual leadership or from other members of the body of Christ, we are on dangerous ground. And, and, And this is why... One of our big passions and kind of one of our foundational ministries here at Ambassador is our small groups. We believe that you need uh, this fellowship. You need these types of relationships in your life. If you're going to pursue Christ, we need to do that together. What do I always say? A lone ranger is a 
But come on, you guys got it. The Lone Ranger is a... What's the key to learning? There we go. My, my youth students know that. Uh, repetition is the key to learning. But understanding that Christian life is not intended to be lived alone. Uh, the Christian life is intended to be lived in community. All of us moving together towards Christ uh, and following him. And then when some one of us slips and stumbles, who's there to pick him up? Everybody else. Hey, let's let's do this together. When someone uh, is ensnared with sin, we're there to to lovingly confront him, undo the the trap of sin that has caught him. uh, And we walk together with that person following Jesus. And again, that's why this is so important that we proclaim Christ again, a relationship with him. But we are warning and teaching everyone in all wisdom. Uh, and that is that's really going to take place in our small groups. I can I can exhort you all and, and teach you all in a very general way here together uh, this morning. Uh, but we're really going to get to know each other and be known by one another in our small groups. Right. Uh, you're, you can't get to know 150 people intimately. Right. But you can get to know 10. Uh, and, and that's the, the goal within that, of being in fellowship, being in community with others, uh, where you're coming together and saying, hey, let's follow Jesus. Let's walk and follow him together. And that is what Paul longs for the church to be, and that is what we long to be. And proclaiming the person and the work of Jesus is the first characteristic of true gospel ministry. Not proclaiming principles or uh, programs or anything else. We proclaim a person, and that is Jesus. And the second characteristic that we're going to see of true gospel ministry is at the end of verse 28. And that characteristic is that gospel ministry is motivated to see everyone believe in and become like Jesus. That gospel ministry is motivated to see everyone believe in Become like Jesus. Look with me at the end of verse 28. It says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And whenever you see that little word that or so that in Scripture, what we are seeing is a purpose statement of why something that preceded it is taking place. So to what end is Paul teaching and admonishing and proclaiming Jesus? What does he want to see happen? He wants to see everyone that he's teaching and admonishing and warning. What does he want to see take place in their lives? He doesn't say, I just want them to obey me. I just just want them to have an easy life. It's not what he says. See, Paul's goal in ministry is to see people become more and more like Jesus. To grow in maturity in following him. To know what it looks like to follow Christ. And so if the first half of verse 28 is the model of Paul's ministry, now we see what motivates him in his ministry. What gets him out of bed in the morning uh, in his prison cell there in Rome. Right? Something's got to motivate you. What we see here is that Paul's goal is to present believers to God at the final judgment. That's that emphasis there. When he says that, that we may present, the idea is of presenting believers before God. If you if you turn the page in your Bible back over to Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 uh, or we can start reading in verse 21 but the word we're going to look at is in verse 22. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in his body of flesh 
by his death in order to present, there's our word, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he says, hey, what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross presents us before God as holy and blameless. Amen? How glorious is that truth? But now, Paul's goal as we follow Jesus is to sanctify us, to to grow us so that we may present ourselves before God as being mature and so that we may present others as mature in Christ. And that that repetition of this word is intended to, to bring that to mind of Paul's goal is to present everyone that he has discipled, the churches that he's poured into, is to one day present them to God and say, God, look at Look at how you have worked through me to glorify yourself. That is Paul's goal. That is his ambition, his, his purpose. Uh, and then the question comes of what does he mean by mature? Right? If he wants to present every man mature in Christ, what does that look like? And that word mature uh, has the idea of a couple different things, so it's kind of difficult to translate. Uh, it carries the idea of being mature or the idea of being Perfect. Either way, it's this concept of being fully developed uh, and uh, of the highest standard. Uh, and one pastor says it connotates the quality of being so wholehearted in one's devotion to the Lord that one can be said to be blameless in conduct. Of that, that's Paul's desire for uh, each and every one of us. Is for each and every one of the Colossians, and that carries over. To us, uh, and so Paul's definition of maturity would seem to be that, that someone has a who has a sound understanding of Christian doctrine, and then is beginning to live that out. It's not just a a head knowledge, but it's also a heart obedience, leading to uh, a demonstration of that heart obedience in the way that we conduct ourselves. Now, that is Paul's desire, and what motivates Paul is this reality that one day he will stand before the Lord. And he will have to give an account uh, of how he has conducted his stewardship. Right? We read that earlier in this same paragraph. Paul says, I have a stewardship. I have a responsibility given to me by God to proclaim this message to shepherds, God's people. And he says, if I've been given this stewardship, I'm going to one day have to stand before God and give an account. Right? Just like the parable uh, of the talents in Matthew 25. Right? Uh, they were given... Uh, money by their the slaves were given money by their master and said hey go and use these talents go use this money to make money for your master Uh, and then uh, after the master went away what did he come back and ask of those servants say give an account for what has been entrusted to you and paul is saying he has been entrusted with this ministry and he's going to have to give an account so what motivates paul is to be faithful in that Paul wanted to see people believe in and become like Jesus because that was the charge he had received from God. And and having the proper motivation can change everything, right? Because if you have been involved in ministry, sometimes ministry can be wearisome, right? It can be exhausting. Uh, If you haven't noticed, people are sometimes difficult to work with. Right. So there's not too many amens, but I know in your heart you're like, yeah, that's so that's so true. Right. So so having this motivation uh, is so important for the Apostle Paul. But think about this of uh, the importance of how we we view our circumstances can change everything. This, this story of two stonemasons. You can walk up to the, the first stonemason and ask, hey, do you like your job? And he looks up at you and he replies, I've been building this wall 
for as long as I can remember. The work is monotonous. I work in the scorching hot sun all day. The stones are heavy and lifting them day after day can be backbreaking. I'm not even sure if this project will be completed in my lifetime. But it's a job and it pays the bills. So we, we, we talk to this stonemason, we thank him for his time, and then we go on to this other stonemason. And you ask him the same question. Do you like your job? And he looks up, he says, I love my job. I'm building a cathedral. Sure, I've been working on this wall for as long as I can remember. And yes, the work is sometimes monotonous. I work in the scorching hot sun all day and the stones are heavy and lifting them day after day can be backbreaking. And I'm not even sure this project will be completed in my lifetime, but I'm building a cathedral. See, what's the difference? They're doing the exact same work, but one of them has no understanding of what they're doing. And they have no motivation. What's the first motivation? It pays the bills. It is what it is. But the second one understands how his work is uh, a part of a bigger plan. Uh, He sees what he is building. Something to glorify God. And the work of ministry sometimes feels tedious. And if it feels tedious, I would venture to say you may have lost your motivation. You may not understand why you are working and what you are working towards. But understanding why motivates us even in the most difficult of circumstances, right? When we understand what we are working towards, we are willing to to endure hardships for a time because where are we focused? Focused upon the, the bigger picture, and that's what motivates us. But if we do not understand why the Christian life will really become a drudgery, right? Like, well, i got to wake up Sunday morning, get the kids ready, try and get them out the door to church, uh, do all of this. I could be at home in my warm bed, and it's really cold outside because it's winter now. And right, It's really easy to give in to those temptations when you just are looking at the immediacy of a Sunday morning. But when we look at the, the bigger picture of, no, God has called me to be a part of this church, of Ambassador Bible Fellowship, to come and to contribute, to come back and worship him for who he is and what he has done, to come and uh, pick up my brothers and sisters in Christ and to encourage them along the way. All of those same excuses feed into those small groups as well, because it's really easy during the week, after a long, hard day, uh, to say, well, I don't know if I can make it to group tonight. Or, man, group is really early 6.30 in the morning in Nampa, but there's Chick-fil-A, and that's a good motivation, but uh, it's not the motivation, right? Uh, but, but knowing and understanding, hey, what am I working towards, helps you in that drudgery when you're like, I don't know if I can go on. Knowing and understanding the why is so, so important. Even more so when following Christ becomes difficult, right? And a couple of weeks ago, I, I, we talked about that. That the world is growing more and more hostile to those who follow Jesus. And if you look back just at the beginning of this paragraph, verse 24, how can you say what the Apostle Paul says? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say he's rejoicing in suffering? What does he have to have in mind? The why. He has to know and understand why is he enduring all of these hardships. It's because he knows who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. He knows now what Jesus is calling him to. 
And he has a desire to do that, to glorify God. Paul was motivated to present everyone mature in Christ, to see people believe in and become like Jesus. And that should be our motive. And when that is our motive, ministry becomes a whole lot easier. It also informs that the goal of our ministry is not riches or wealth. It's not to see people living prosperously, to, living, to see them living healthily. That's not the goal. The goal is to glorify God by seeing sinners become more and more like Christ. To see them believe in and become like Jesus. And when a sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. When a sinner turns and trusts in Christ, that brings glory and honor to God. When a believer who is uh, continually growing in Christ's likeness, that glorifies God just as much. God is put on display to a watching world. And so we have to, to look and examine, hey, what, what's our motivation in ministry? And you are all involved in ministry. Every parent is involved in ministry in their own home. Right? And this, this influences and impacts even the way that you look at the discipleship of your own children. Because your goal should be not to just have obedient kids. right? Not to have kids that just fear you and will say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. Because you can get kids that way for a time, but what's eventually going to happen? They're going to go. The goal of parenting, the goal of any discipleship, is not just to have people be obedient. The goal is to see them do what? Believe in and become like Christ. And then if that's the goal, uh, we, we understand that. Parents, you can just think, when your kids disobey you, how do you feel? Frustrated, right? And you can take that as a slide against you, right? If you're saying, hey, if your goal is to have obedient kids, when they disobey you, you're going to lose it, right? Your sanctification is going to be gone. <laughs> like, where did I, where did I put that? Uh, but if your goal is to see your children become more and more like Christ, submitting to their will to God in the same way that Christ did, to see them walking like Jesus, then you begin to understand it's not about you. It's about God, and it's about teaching and training your kids or anybody else you are discipling and pointing them to Jesus, not pointing them to principles or programs or anything else. Who do we proclaim? What do we proclaim? We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone in all wisdom. And so this is what should motivate our ministry. This is, this is what got the Apostle Paul out of bed. This is what helped the Apostle Paul to endure hardships and to rejoice in the middle of his suffering. Can it do that for us? Absolutely. We have to keep that in mind. We have to keep the big picture of what God is doing in all of creation. We also talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, of not missing the big picture. The big picture of the Bible is redemption in Christ for the glory of God. The big picture of the Bible is that God is saving a people for himself uh, through his son, Jesus. And it's all intended to be to the glory and praise and honor of God the Father. That is what we are called to see. And that's what we see ourselves as being a part of that plan. That as we focus upon discipling and pouring into others to help them believe in and become like Jesus... We are part of God's bigger plan for all of creation. And that will and can motivate us. Uh, but it doesn't always. Right? 
And that is not always our motivation. Oftentimes, again, our, our, our motivation slides over into the path of least resistance, right? Uh, I want an easy life. Well, it's easier to not have that really difficult conversation, right? Maybe I'll just let it go. Maybe that problem will just vanish all on its own, right? Has that ever happened with anybody? Uh, what, what usually happens when we ignore that problem or that difficult conversation? It comes back, you're like, oh, that's even bigger now. Uh, what has happened overnight? Uh, and so seeing and understanding that we need to examine what motivates us. You may have never asked yourself this, but what is it that motivates you in your walk as a Christian? What's your motive? Why are you here? Why are you pouring into others? Why are you parenting? Why are you discipling? It's a good question to ask. And if you're really honest with yourself, hopefully you have some type of an answer. And whatever that answer is, if it's off, we know where we now need to adjust it. And now we need to change our thinking of, hey, here's, here's what my motive has been, but now here's what it should be. It needs to be to glorify God, to see people believe in and become more and more like Christ our Savior. And that's what we need to examine. And if you've never thought through why you should love and follow Jesus, why you should be involved in ministry... If you've never spent time thinking about that and you have no answer for it, I would venture to probably guess that you may be discouraged in your walk. If you've lost sight of the big picture and you have no motivation, it feels like your wheels are spinning. Where am I going? Why am I doing this? But thinking about and meditating on what is Christ calling me to do? To pour into others, not so that I look good, not so that they become obedient, not anything else like that, but to see them believe in and become like Jesus. And if we don't understand that, we'll never be willing to suffer, we'll never be willing to, to work tirelessly, we'll never be willing to carry out and do those things that are really difficult. Then leads us to this third characteristic that Paul mentions here of true gospel ministry. Found in verse 29, that gospel ministry is carried out by human effort and the effective working of Jesus, that gospel ministry is carried out by human effort and the effective working of Jesus. Look with me at verse 29. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And it, if, we've, if we look at this, this passage as a whole, Paul laid out the, the model of his ministry, right? Proclaiming Jesus. He, he lays out what motivates him. To see every man perfect and mature in Christ. And this is the, this is the means. Well, how do I do that? Because if I'm going to try and disciple everyone I encounter and, and share Christ with them, that sounds absolutely exhausting, right? Like, I'm just, that's going to keep me in bed, actually, if I have that huge task weighing upon me each and every day. So how does Paul do that? What he says is that he says, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that, that little word, I toil, is a very strong word pointing to the continual wearisome effort, even to the point of exhaustion. And then it kind of the, the, the word picture here is heightened even more because he says, I toil, I work myself to exhaustion. And then he has another word of even uh, greater description, struggling 
That, the word where we get uh, our word for agony or agonize. Uh, so Paul works tirelessly, agonizing uh, to the point of just exhaustion. The, the same word of uh, the agonizing is, is word used elsewhere of an athlete uh, competing for a prize, of engaging another person in a battle with weapons. Uh, and it's used by Paul to summarize the entire nature of his battle in this life. When he says, I have fought the good fight, this is the word that he uses. This is what he's talking about. Paul says, I just, I exhaust myself. I work tirelessly, agonizing, strenuously to do what the Lord has called him to do, to teach and admonish everyone with all wisdom, that he may present them mature in Christ. But Paul says he does all of this with whose power, with whose energy? Not his own, but with Christ. He says, hey, the effort that Paul puts forth, who is it that's energizing him? The, the triune God. And, and this is the difference. If, if your motivation is, is lacking, right, if you miss out on that, that middle point that we talked about this morning, you're going to try and do ministry, you're going to try and parent and do all of these things in, in your own strength. And to that, I would just say, how's that working out for you, right? Uh, you, that's why you feel downtrodden. That's why you feel discouraged and, uh, and almost hopeless uh, with the task ahead of you. But looking at and seeing, okay, what is Christ calling me to do? He's calling you to do all of these things, to work tirelessly, but to, to work tirelessly in his energy, uh, a, a spirit-inspired uh, energy rather than just your own Strength, And here what we see is there's this tension between, hey, Paul's efforts and the, the effective working of, of Christ. Uh, and this is the, the twofold nature of our obedience. And earlier on in Colossians, if you look back at chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, as he prays for the Colossians, he says, so as uh, his prayer for them, uh, starting in verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right? That's the, the part of the Colossians' obedience. But then what's Paul's prayer in verse 11? And may you be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. So his prayer is, to, hey, that we would obey, but how would we be empowered to obey? By God and understanding and relying and depending upon him. What the Lord is looking for is dependent effort. But all too often we do independent effort. Say, I'm going to do my own thing in my own strength. Uh, but what Christ calls us to is to labor hard for him and in his strength. And this is the recipe of all Christian obedience. We're called to obey and commanded to work to glorify him, but all of our efforts are in vain unless Christ is the power source behind uh, all that we do. So take, for instance, if an electrician uh, works really hard and long to get a house uh, prepped for electricity. They put in all of the outlets, they do all of the wiring, uh, but this electrician... Not a very good one. Uh, he, he forgets to hook up this house that's all ready for electricity. He forgets to hook it up to the main line. What's going to happen? Nothing. Exactly, exactly the point, right? Uh, he, when you plug something in in that house, you're going to be trying to draw power when there really is none. Uh, and again, all too often we feel that way in the Christian life. We feel like we're plugging in and nothing is happening, right? 
Because again, our motivation is off. We've lost the big picture. We don't, uh, we're relying upon ourselves rather than upon Christ. And if we, if we want to be used by God to, to minister to others, to reach others, we have to put forth effort. But then who are we also dependent upon for the results? God. Uh, and that's part of what this looks like. As we work faithfully and obey Christ, we don't try and manipulate and manufacture the results. Because can we do that? Yeah, parents, can you coerce a, a, a profession of faith from your children? Absolutely. Can you actually save your children? No. Because you can't, you can't give them the new birth. You can't give them spiritual life. Only God is able to do that. But we can work ourselves into a frenzy doing only what God is able to do. So we're called to entrust to him what is, he says he will do. And then we are called to work faithfully in our own responsibilities. But God uses us as his instrument to do ministry. And, and what an honor and a privilege that is, right? God, God wants to accomplish something and he could just do it. Right? He could just say, hey, okay. I want this done. I'm just going to go see to it that it gets done. But what has he said? He says, hey, if he wants something done, who is he going to use? Us. He uses the church. The church is his representative, his instrument in this world to carry forth the gospel and to transform lives. And that's an honor and a privilege, but also a responsibility. He wants to use us to warn and teach others so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. What an honor. How amazing. And if we understand this, we'll be motivated to work diligently, to loyal, uh, to, to, sorry, I, I mixed labor and toil, uh, to loyal, uh, to labor and toil uh, to an agonizing degree for the advancement of the gospel. That's what we will be willing to do if we get the big picture. If we see who Jesus is and we have a desire to, to proclaim him, we will labor hard and diligently. And so... Uh, there's a quote from John MacArthur. I was looking for it somewhere in my notes and I missed it, so I'm going to paraphrase it for you. But, but MacArthur said basically that, that burnout in life and in ministry has nothing to do with effort, but it has everything to do with expectation. Okay? It has everything to do with expectation. Let's go back to that illustration of the two stonemasons, right? Uh, th- that first stonemason, if he is expecting applause and adulation and, and pats on the back from other men and he's not getting it, his expectation is praise from man and he doesn't get it, how is he going to feel? Angry, <laughs> upset, discouraged, all of the above, and, and he probably will quit, right? But the second stonemason, when he understands the big picture and our expectation isn't praise and adoration of man, but it's to seek to glorify God, then we don't expect, if, when we don't get praise from men, we're like, okay, that's not what I'm going for. That, that's not the objective here. My goal is to present uh, myself and others before Christ, sanctified, mature. Uh, and so our expectations change and give us energy. It gives us uh, the willingness to endure through trials and hardships. And, and again, of the, all of those uh, indicators uh, of that we are laboring in our own strength, burnout, discouragement, bitterness, those, those are commonplace uh, in the, the Christian life, but they shouldn't be. Right? Those shouldn't be commonplace uh, as we minister. And if we're feeling those things, it means we may need to, to go back and evaluate, hey, where is my heart? Where is my head? What am I focused upon? 
Am I wanting, has, has my heart shifted and now do I care more about receiving thanks and praise from, from others rather than saying, okay, Lord, this is what you're calling me to do and now I'm going to do it. Of changing our expectation, changing our motivation. And what we see is that just in this whole paragraph, verses 24 to 29, we see the Apostle Paul saying, hey, I rejoice in my suffering. The world is hostile and attacking me, but I still rejoice. And he labors and toils in an agonizing, ceaseless, tireless way. And he does it all joyfully, serving Christ. Because he's motivated to see people believe in and become like Jesus. Because he knows that brings glory to God. And it is absolutely and utterly life-changing to everybody who is caught up in sin as we all are. So what we see overall this morning, these three characteristics, you can say the the model, the motivation, and the means, the what, the why, and the how of genuine gospel ministry. And it's so important for us as individuals to to, to digest all of this and, and to begin to apply it to our own life. But it's even more important for us corporately as a church to know and understand why has God placed us here? Why has God brought you here to the Treasure Valley? Not just to escape California. Uh, I know that's, you're like, that's the easy answer, right? But, but God has brought you here to bring glory to Him. To glorify Him. To reach your friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members with the gospel. To see, have a desire to see people believe in and become like Jesus. To, to be freed from the power of sin for addictions to be broken, for relationships to be reconciled, for lives to be utterly transformed. That is what we must long for. And that's what must be central here at our church. We have to be committed to proclaiming Christ, His person, His work, not any other philosophy or principles or programs. We proclaim a person. We have to be committed to warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and to having uh, each member of the church participate in this through our growth groups. Again, the, 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 really that admonition, that warning, that teaching is going to come here in a limited way, but even more fully in our small groups. We must be committed to growing people to the point of maturity in Christ. And that's what we must be passionate about. Not for another notch in our belt, but because we long to see people glorify and become like Jesus. And we are committed to laboring for the advancement of the gospel. We want to work in His power, not our own, and then leave the results up to Him. And and what a freeing thing that is, right? That, Lord, you're calling me to do this. Here's what I'm going to do. And then I get to leave the results up to God. God, may I be faithful in my responsibility, and then may I be prayerful in lifting everything else over to you. Ultimately, we want to be a church that is centered upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. May we proclaim Him. May we be faithful to the true gospel. May we have a ministry that is focused upon the gospel. And keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing for the church? To make disciples. Evangelism and discipleship. I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says, Take away the gospel from a church, and that church is not worth preserving. A well without water, a scabbard without a sword... A steam engine without a fire, a ship without compass or rudder, a watch without a mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life. All useless things. But there is nothing so useless as a church without the gospel. 
May that not be us, but may we focus all of our lives, all of our ministry upon Christ, who He is and what He's done. Amen.